You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is an associate professor of organizational studies at the University of Michigan and the author of Thinking Like an Economist, How Efficiency Replaced Equality in U.S. Public Policy. She is also a sociologist whose work is at the intersection of organizations, economic sociology, and the sociology of science and knowledge. Much of her work focuses on recent U.S. history and emphasizes the role of public policy. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Elizabeth Pop Birdman. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me today. Firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your research. Sure. So I am a sociologist by training, and uh, most of my research has been in these questions that are sort of um, at the border of uh, economics and sociology in some ways. I've been very interested in how we uh, how we build markets, how we think about governing them, and what the role of, of policy is in that. So I sort of uh, started out actually by studying um, universities and studying how academic science became more entrepreneurial. And in the course of, uh, of uh, writing a book on that, I really shifted in the direction of, of, of being interested in policymaking and of the U.S. policy process. And so, uh, so, so the conclusion of, of that book was basically that you know universities became entrepreneurial in a bunch of ways. Uh, first and foremost, because policy changes happened, but uh, the the reason that those policy changes happened was in part the influence of an economic idea, and the the idea was that technological innovation can drive economic growth. Um, and so that kind of got me interested in the influence of economic ideas more generally. Uh, and, uh, you know, in spaces that were sort of well beyond science and technology policy. And that was kind of the, the origins of uh, the book that, that I just published, uh, Thinking Like an Economist. Okay, so your latest book is titled Thinking Like an Economist, How Efficiency Replaced Equality in U.S. Public Policy and explores how an economic style of reasoning came to dominate in Washington between the 1960s and the 1980s. So before we get into the impacts of the shift, can you walk us through the reasoning that was dominant in public policy prior to the 60s um, and what led to this transition in the way of thinking? Yeah, so it's not that there was sort of one coherent hegemonic view that that sort of dominated before uh before the 1960s and uh and there was sort of a you know uniform shift towards something new and different um but you know what i talk about as the economic style of reasoning here and you know what i what i mean when i say economic style of reasoning is really a microeconomic way of thinking that is fairly basic right it's fairly econ 101 uh just sort of thinking about policy in terms of uh uh, concepts like you know, efficiency, trade-offs, cost-effectiveness, you know, thinking at the margin, these sorts of, of, of very basic things. Um, and uh, while it seems sort of self-evident now that we would, we would look at policy in this way, uh, at the time when this uh, way of thinking really started to spread in policy spaces, which was really um, began in the 1960s, uh, it, was, it was pretty foreign to policymakers. And uh, it would often... Uh, you know, it would either it was either be resisted sometimes on um, 
moral grounds. So for example, uh, just to give you one example, um, in, in the late 1950s, uh, you know, Ronald Coase, famous economist, proposed that the uh, Federal Communications Commission uh, might uh, might want to try auctioning off the uh, telecommunications spectrum as, as sort of an efficient way of distributing it. And at the time, this was just sort of um, unheard of, right? It was seen as sort of uh, morally problematic, you know, the airwaves were the, for the public, and this was not how you should think about, about making those kinds of decisions. Um, and, you know, and, and basically, uh, he was sort of, uh, you know, hauled, hauled into Congress and sort of called a task for, for making this argument. Um, within a few decades, you know, that argument had become totally normalized. People saw this as being a sensible way to distribute the airwaves. And by the 1990s, that's, that's, you know, that's how we're actually doing things. And so that's just sort of one example, but uh, it kind of gives a little bit of the flavor of how over this period of time, um, ways of thinking about problems that uh, were once very unfamiliar uh, became uh, prevalent and, and naturalized in a lot of policy spaces. Okay. Um, so in addition to public policy, you also talk about um, economic style reasoning gaining a foothold in law and policy schools during this time. So can you tell us a bit more about how this way of thinking found its way into these sorts of graduate programs, especially law, and what impact that had? Yeah. So um, so, so the way the book is sort of structured, it is, is following two main strands of, of sets of people who were uh, helping to introduce and, and advocate for these ideas. And so uh, so you had one community of people uh, who were uh, you know, primarily economists who were mostly based at uh, the Rand Corporation uh, in Santa Monica. And uh, those folks came to Washington and introduced um, new kinds of, of budgeting techniques. Uh, and, and kind of the, the, the core thing that they really did was introduce the idea that the way to think about policy decisions was to look for the policies that were going to be the most uh, cost effective. Um, and to kind of, kind of, if you wanted to choose between options, you're going to compare and then identify the one that's going to most cost effectively reach your goals. So there's sort of one, uh, one strand of the story. Uh, there's a second, a group of folks who are, are central to the story. And this is sort of a looser network of industrial organization economists. And so these are the folks who are studying things like market structure and are interested in the economic behavior of firms. Um, and they start to come to Washington to really uh, try to um, introduce new ideas. Initially, initially they're mostly thinking about how to govern markets, right? And so they are uh, important actors in the early deregulation movement. So they're they're looking at areas like uh, transportation and saying, look, uh, you know, regulating uh, regulating prices and entry in these areas is. Uh, creating new kinds of problems, and we should deregulate in order to make these markets more efficient. And so, um, each of these sets of of of, of people, uh, you know, they kind of had their own distinct pathways of influence. And the Rand folks, who you know, who uh, spoke of themselves as being systems analysts, um, they ended up uh, having a lot of influence in the creation of schools of public policy. Um, so historically, there had been a discipline of public administration, you know, which dated back to the early 20th century, and that was really not so much about identifying good policies as it was about sort of, uh, it was more about management management techniques. Um, but in the mid-1960s, 
as uh, the federal government is adopting these new budgeting techniques, uh, universities start to realize that there is a new market for people who can do these sort of RAND style uh, cost effectiveness analyses of policy. And so they create public policy programs as a way to uh, as a way to meet this new demand. And so they are um, they are taking off really between the years of like 1968 and 1970. Um, and they're organized around a core curriculum that's very microeconomic. And so, uh, you know, over the course of some years, they're producing these students who have masters of public policy, who kind of understand the basics of, way these, of this way of thinking, and then who take that to Washington with them as they go on to uh, various kinds of careers. Um, but the second set of people that I mentioned, the industrial organization economists, uh, they end up having more of their um, uh, academic influence through law schools. Uh, and in particular, um, you know, uh, if, uh, you know, I don't know how familiar people are with the law and economics movement in general, but um, it's often thought of as sort of starting in the, in the 1970s. But in the 1960s, uh, there were already um, industrial organization economists who were trying to rethink um, certain areas of law, particularly antitrust law and law around regulated industries in order to introduce more, um, more economic reasoning into it. And, uh, you know, so it sort of starts there. It sort of expands into other spaces of law. But um, effectively, what you have happened is that you know, certainly in, in specific subfields of the law, um, but, but to, to some extent, you know, across, across areas of law more generally, uh, again, these sorts of you know, basic ways of thinking are incorporated into the curriculum so that so that uh, people are exposed to them. And so, um, you know, so in an area like antitrust policy, you know, one lasting consequence of this is, uh, you know, is, is the idea that uh, you know, the, what antitrust policy is designed to do is to promote allocative efficiency in markets. And so that's sort of its fundamental uh, purpose. Um, and by uh, by helping to establish that idea, you know, among people who are sort of being trained in the law, um, you know, I think people uh, tend to internalize uh, ideas that they're that they're learning uh, early in their career, and then of course they take those with those with them. You know, whether some of them are going to go to law firms, but some are going to go into into policy sorts of spaces. And so, um, yeah, and so and so through these uh, educational channels that aren't necessarily about you know economics departments uh, or people receiving advanced training in economics. Again, this, this sort of broad approach to policy problems uh, is able to sort of uh, spread and have a much wider influence. Okay, um, so someone who's spent hundreds of hours discussing all manner of issues with econ um, economists, the economic style of thinking seems like a fundamentally necessary framework um, through which to look at policy issues. So anytime the government gets involved in the market, I mean, regardless of its political bent, its job first and foremost is to create a net increase or the maximum possible net increase in social benefit, right? So that applies to the airwaves, that would apply to the antitrust. Um, so economic thinking um, and, and models which allow the government to carry out its goals in the most efficient uh, manner possible, maximize that social benefit. So shouldn't we as the constituency want economics, especially that economic style of reasoning front and center and everything that happens in Washington? Like what would be the alternative? Yeah. So the point, um, you know, the point that I'm trying to make here is not so much that efficiency isn't a worthwhile goal, right? Because but clearly, you know, nobody's going to argue against efficiency. Like, I don't know what that would even look like to say that, you know, that we want to be not efficient for the sake of, of, of not being efficient. 
Um, and so I think that, you know, I think that it certainly makes sense that we should be thinking about um, how to achieve our goals efficiently as part of what we're doing. Um, you know, the point that I'm really trying to make here is that efficiency is, is often presented as um, a sort of value neutral, right? That it is, uh, it is not even a value. It is just sort of, uh, uh, you know, it is just sort of a default uh, aim that you are trying to achieve. But the, the, but the issue is, is that efficiency can often come into conflict with other kinds of political values. And, uh, you know, on the, on the left side of the political spectrum that I'm focusing on in this book, you know, those are values like uh, equality or like universalism that might be in tension at times with prioritizing efficiency as a, as a central goal. Um, you know, and on the on the right side of the political spectrum, that might uh, those might look like uh, you know believing in smaller government because you know because you think that is a is a political priority uh, again, and and just not caring about efficiency itself as an outcome as much. So part of what I'm trying to do is draw attention to the idea that um, that efficiency actually is a value and uh, and sort of denaturalize it a little bit, I guess. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, that, that, that makes sense. But I, I think, um, going back to sort of like, um, the, the political goals, you state that quote, fearing waste and overspending liberals reined in their ambitions for decades to come. So to me, that sounds like a, a really good thing rather than a negative because the job of economic reasoning, um, in, in this context is to tell us whether the benefits of a certain policy or proposal justify its costs. So if we find economic reasoning restraining ambitions, it's because that particular ambition probably wasn't mathematically sound or desirable to start with. So the way I see it, economics restrains public or political policy ambitions in the same way that physics restrains how high we can set our speed limits. So can you walk me through your idea of how economic reasoning restraining ambitions, progressive or, or conservative is not a good thing? Yeah, I think, um, you know, what I would say is that, um, is that, you know, when we think about, if we, if we approach a particular policy and we think about it centrally in terms of cost effectiveness, you know, one that's subject to a lot of limitations about what we know about how the world works, you know, which, which we're going to have to make a lot of assumptions about. It is something that is going to ignore what the political consequences of a, of a particular action are. Um, it is something that is going to, uh, you know, necessarily um, focus on trying to, uh, you know, that th th is not going to pay attention to what the political realities might be in a particular situation. And so uh, it is really difficult in those circumstances. Um, you know, th those aren't the kinds of things that, that a cost effectiveness analysis can take into account. Um, and at the same time, uh, because because uh, because this kind of way of thinking, um, you know, you know, if you just sort of take this as your starting point and say, okay, this is this is centrally how we're going to think about what sorts of things we're going to try to achieve uh, through government or not. Um, you know, one point that I make in the book is that in practice, the way that it's been used has been pretty asymmetric. That 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 the style of of thinking has been something that Democrats have usually remained more committed to, and that Republicans have kind of used in a more strategic way. Um, so, you know, for example, while you can see a shift over time uh, in the Democratic position around something like universal health care, where, you know, in 1970, you have Ted Kennedy is, is, is you know, his proposal is basically for you know, the government to provide health insurance for everybody. And, you know, nobody's really paying attention to the cost. Um, 
And you've got the shift over time until till the Clinton administration to where the focus is much more about, um, you know, well, let's think about how much of this can be done through the, the private sector, how much of this can be done, um, you know, trying to leverage market mechanisms to make this work uh, in various ways. Um, you know, and, and, and yes, that might make sense in some ways if it were actually actually doable, but it ignores a lot of a lot of political factors. Um, you know, for example, uh, you know, there's a strong argument to be made that universal programs are more politically resilient because they end up having having um, uh, a lot of strong support. Um, on the on the other side of the aisle, uh, what you end up seeing, and this is only something that really emerges in the in the Reagan era. Um, you know, I think during the Nixon and, and even the Ford administrations, um, uh, Demo- in, in those periods, Democrats and Republicans were using this economic way of thinking in relatively similar ways. Um, but by the time that Reagan comes into office, he is, um, you know, his administration is using economics very strategically um, and, and, and using it to achieve sort of deeper political goals. And so, um, you know, so, so there are spaces in which kind of the conventional economic arguments line up with what um, his administration's political priorities are. So, for example, um, you know, an antitrust policy, the Chicago school was sort of dominant at the time. Um, and, the, and the core, you know, the, the main argument that economists were making was, uh, you know, we should reduce antitrust enforcement. Mergers aren't a concern. Um, and so, you know, that aligned with Reagan's larger uh, political framework. And so he was very supportive of economics in, in that area. Um, by contrast, in uh, an area like social policy, uh, you know, Reagan's priority in, in social policy was really more about making government smaller rather than making it sort of more efficient or cost effective. Um, and so there, uh, the Reagan administration ends up cutting a lot of support for economic analysis, really kind of uh, slashing the budget of um, of uh, economic analysis and social agencies uh, because he had sort of a more fundamental disagreement with the premise of, well, should government be uh, involved with this or not in the first place? And so in part because you have this, um, you know, this asymmetry between how the two sides are using economic reasoning, uh, you know, what, one thing that happens is I think it contributes to sort of a, a ratcheting of politics uh, rightward over this over this period of time. Um, and, you know, and I think I think one thing that especially people who are very comfortable with the sort of technocratic uh, economic style, um, uh, you know, don't always don't always see or don't always pay attention to is that um, by not having people on sort of both sides of the spectrum, who are making these strong value-based arguments uh, that are grounded in broader political beliefs um, that, uh, you know, the the, the answer is not that, um, you know, the solutions that actually get put into place are going to be uh, sort of these neutral analyses of what would be the most cost-effective. You know, they're going to be shaped by who is actually, who is actually making these broader moral or political claims um, and, and, you know, and, and who is, is going to be able to use the, the style in a strategic way. 
Okay. Um, I, I think I, I would sort of um, take issue with that that characterization of um, Reagan or or the, the Reagan era Republicans um, using economics in in a different or even a, a strategic way. So, I mean, you mentioned how a lot of the time what we saw from the Reagan administration was um, slashing government budgets or or slashing areas um, of government programs and that sort of thing. Um, but I think sort of the 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 precondition be or, or the the reasoning behind that wasn't so much, the, um, you know, we that they prefer a smaller government um, and, and that they're willing to do whatever to to pursue a political goal, um, but rather a purely economic idea that um, government in itself um, has is inherently inefficient because anytime the government's taking in that kind of money and, and moving it around, they're you know obviously going to be paying bureaucrats, going to be there's going to be all these um, drains, all this wastage, um, all this all this um, extra unnecessary spending, and also the government isn't subject to any of the same market forces. Um, so sort of that invisible hand uh, of the market that that keeps everything efficient in, in the private sector. None of those market forces really apply to the government. So when the government tries to do something, I think we've seen this, um, you know, count. It's quite a common common argument or quite a common line of reasoning, especially, um, you know, from that, that Chicago school, Milton Friedman um, era, um, you know, economic thinkers. Um, and so, I, I mean, if, if you think of that as sort of being a purely economic idea that the the best way to have the most efficient outcomes is not to have the government involved in the business of doing them, but just to have the government out of the business of them at, uh, overall, because the government is inherently inefficient. Um, do you think that sort of changes the the, the perception of that being uh, in pursuit of a political goal? Um, could that have just been purely economic? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, I think I would, I would take issue maybe with the part of that that is saying that, um, that, you know, the, 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 the Reagan administration, for example, that, uh, you know, that it's fundamental, that it's fundamentally its decisions were kind of grounded in this idea that, you know, that regulation is inefficient, right? You know, government is going to make markets inefficient and thus we should, we should deregulate because I think it was, it was more specific and more um, opportunistic than that in some ways. And, and just to give you one example, um, uh, you know, and I'm saying this because, because I think, I think the, the more, the deeper position was really that, you know, we believe regulation is bad across the board, and uh, it's not so much about about identifying. You know, let's do some. You know, let's do some modeling to think about where, where are the instances where regulation might be uh, might be efficient, where might it be less so. Um, but just to give you you uh, one particular example, you know, one thing that the Reagan administration was very interested in was in um, promoting cost benefit analysis of government regulation. And so this is something that that on the surface, I mean, obviously, right, it seems very much uh, in keeping with with economic reasoning. It's very much uh, couched in that kind of language. Um, but you know, when it, you know, there, there were places where it got itself into into trouble by that because um, you know the initial thought was, okay, well, if we sort of do cost benefit analyses, then we will that that will help us in our in our effort to deregulate. Um, but it turned out that that in in some areas and. Um, Analyses around uh, leaded gasoline is sort of a, a um, classic example here, where uh, you know the administration really wanted to uh, continue to allow leaded gasoline and just kind of try to um, limit uh, the restrictiveness of regulations around that, um, and was pushing to do more cost-benefit analyses to try to, to to try to make that case. You know, well, when those analyses actually got conducted, it turned out that because 
of the health effects of, of lead, which were sort of just, you know, becoming ever, ever clearer, um, you know, that it was, you know, something like a 10 to one or, or more than that um, a benefit to limiting lead in gasoline. Um, and, you know, that didn't actually change what the administration wanted because they weren't actually looking in that case for the, for the most cost-effective uh, solution. They were interested in achieving a particular um, a particular regulatory outcome because that was the regulatory outcome they wanted. Um, and, uh, you know, and then in that particular case, um, you know, an effort to use economics strategically uh, did not succeed, but rather backfired. Uh, but, uh, but ultimately it was, it was a decision that was sort of, you know, driven by underlying beliefs rather than by, um, you know, say really wanting to say, follow the numbers. Okay, um, so sort of going back to the the progressive policy agenda, then um, you, I mean, you also wrote in the description that quote with the political left resurgent today, Democrats seem poised to break the past, break with the past, um, but doing so will require abandoning the shibboleth of economic efficiency and successfully advocating new ways of thinking about policy. Um, again, it would seem to me here that without the shibboleth of economic efficiency, that we would be blind to the actual realities and impacts of new policy and legislation, right? So, I mean, if we think about the the universal healthcare example you mentioned earlier, um, where when it was being proposed um, prior to this the, the, this sort of thinking gaining a stronghold, um, people weren't very concerned with the costs. Um, it was more so just looking at what is what what is this going to achieve, um, and and why do we need it. Um, and then by the Clinton administration, uh, progressives are more more focused on um, can we use market forces to do this? Um, is there a more efficient way we can do this? Can the private sector potentially accomplish some of this? And all that, I think, to me, gets at the fact that if we're going to be spending you know, X dollars on some new social program, um, taxpayers expect that they're going to be getting the best possible return on that investment with minimal, minimal waste. right? And so if, if there is a more efficient way to get but get to the same outcomes. Um, and if, if that sort of, um, and, and if understanding it and getting at those outcomes requires the economic style of thinking shouldn't, I mean, is, isn't that something we should be in, in favor of um, rather than thinking about new ways of policy? Obviously, like, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier, there are limitations to the sort of cost benefit analysis. There's, we can't take into account all, all of the uh, variables that actually play out in the real world. And there's things that don't, play in. But to me, it's, I mean, just because there are limitations to the sort of cost-benefit analysis we can conduct, uh, I don't know how that justifies sort of throwing that model out the window altogether. I mean, wouldn't we just be making judgments based on values or, or opinions then? Yeah. I mean, I'm not actually advocating that we, that we you know, abandon all kinds of cost-benefit thinking and sort of, you know, toss out the idea of efficiency altogether. But I think, I think, I think um, that sort of space of, of uh, healthcare, you know, health insurance is actually uh, really, really illustrative of this because I think the uh, counter example there is Medicare, you know, Medicare is created in 1965. It's essentially universal, um, you know, and it was, you know, it was passed at a time when the congressional budget office hadn't yet been created you know, of course, people were paying attention to costs in some way, but there were there were no sort of systematic, uh, you know, uh, there were no sort of systems analyses of the sort that were happening elsewhere that were done when thinking about what were the consequences of Medicare going to be. Um, and on the one hand, you know, you could say, OK, well, this is not the most efficient program that we actually could have created. You know, um, one can one can imagine you know, ways in which 
say, cost sharing or means testing could have been incorporated to create a program that um, that would be more efficient. Um, but, you know, but one, it's a program that actually came to pass, right? And, and it actually did manage to cover, you know, universally the, the population that it was trying to cover. Um, you know, by contrast, by the time we get to something like the Affordable Care Act, it expands insurance coverage, but it, it still doesn't um, manage to uh, cover everybody. Um, and so I think that, uh, oh, and the second, the second piece of that as well is just that, um, you know, is that it, that it is something that turns out to be very politically resilient. Um, and so I think, you know, the question is, uh, the question is sometimes, do you want to create a policy that is uh, as as cost effective as it could possibly be? You know that 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 you know where that is the central uh, goal of policy, or do you want to, or do you want to actually achieve a policy at all? Um, and I think you know, I think another space that you see this is in um, you know in environmental policy, and particularly around um, around CO two, um, and you know the idea, the, the sort of the the, the economic status quo for a long time has been that, um, you know, that the, either a carbon tax or cap and trade, that this is sort of the, the right way to address uh, climate. And, you know, like I personally, that would be great. I would love to see, I would love to see us figure out how to price carbon in a way that, um, that allowed us to, to um, bring, uh, to bring emissions under control. Um, but, you know, in effect, what, what's happened is that the political barriers to that particular kind of kind of solution have been so high that, um, you know, that we haven't been able to act at all. And other kinds of, of approaches, you know, things that that, that that take more of an industrial policy approach, um, you know, things that do look a little bit more like command and control, um, you know, they, yes, they may be they may be less efficient. Um, but they also may, in some cases, be the only political viable, but politically viable way to actually achieve some of the things that you're trying to do. Okay, well, those are all the questions I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Bourbon. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.